This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. 5pm in the City of London, good evening, welcome, you are listening to The Cable, we are live on DAB Digital Radio, I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York, Happy New Year everybody, I say that, I don't know whether it's going to be true or not Alex, because certainly the start of this year already from an equity point of view, beginning to look a little ugly, particularly on your side of the pond, the Nasdaq is down by 1.25%, European equities finishing positive, but Tesla's getting crushed, and Apple is absolutely getting crushed. Yeah, when Guy says Happy New Year, he doesn't like mean it. Like He wishes you well, but he's feeling pretty pessimistic. And I can tell you that over the last few hours uh, of being around Guy. I'm trying to be a little more optimistic, but in terms of the price action, you are absolutely correct. You have the S&P off 34 whopping points. Tesla, Apple just getting really slammed there. But this is a new year. Can we try and be positive? You're only here for five minutes, so you, you don't care. No. The reason I'm not here for five uh, only for um, only here for five minutes because there's a train strike again. Yeah. So it's not exactly the kind of the start of the year that I was hoping for. Yes. No. And fair enough. And 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 messing with a commute is like messing with your whole life. So I can totally it, yeah. respect and feel that way. Um, and we will miss you obviously. But Marcus Ashworth is going to be stepping into your shoes. He is. In just a few moments. He will be, which is excellent news. Uh, he obviously is incredibly buoyant and positive about most things. So I'm he's sure never he's, he's never negative. He's never negative. With lots of New Year cheer. Um, we'll get to Marcus in just a moment. Let's get to Charlie first of all and just recap everything you need to know. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Got to begin with the rail strike because rail workers are off the job for much of the week, paralyzing transport and adding to the troubles piling up for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government. Union workers are on strike for five. Five days, today being the first, snarling the usual return to work following the holidays and interrupting January sales that are crucial for retailers. The European Union and China have moved closer to a political standoff over the COVID-19 crisis with Beijing vehemently rejecting travel restrictions some EU nations have started to impose that could well be expanded in coming days. Also, an EU offer of help, including vaccine donations, was turned down. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's spokesman Max Blaine told reporters today the UK has seen no indications of any new COVID-19 variants of concern emerging from China. Blaine says Britain will start testing some arrivals by air from China on January 5th due to a lack of comprehensive health information that is being shared by China. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, good luck. Back to you now in London. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Um, it comes with the usual caveats. Uh, Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes' time to get us updated. It's not just me that's feeling a little uh, a little concerned about how this year is going to turn out. Um, the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Gugieva, is warning that the global economy faces a tougher year ahead than we faced in 2022. We expect one-third of the world economy to be in recession. For most of the world economy, this is going to be a tough year, tougher than the year we leave behind. Why? Because the three big economies, US, EU, China, are all slowing down simultaneously. 
She doesn't exactly have positive things to say about the UK. Let me assure you of that. <laughs> she was speaking uh, on CBS's Face the Nation over the weekend. Um, so just how bad could things get? What should we be looking at in terms of the risks that we should be thinking about in 2023? Is it going to be a happy new year, Marcus Ashworth? <laughs> of course it is. Um, I just about sometimes you have to uh, get the pieces that everyone has railed on, particularly the UK, uh, and it's starting to dawn perhaps on others that the situation perhaps elsewhere is just as bad, if not worse. Not to say that the UK is not going to do very much at all this year. I think that we will be in a modest uh, recession unless things dramatically turn worse. But there is full employment. Um, bond yields are behaving themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, equity market looks cheap. Um, currency's doing fine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not in a great place, but it's not as bad as some people would, would have you think it is. So let's just put it this way. Marcus can be pessimistic, but not when it comes to the UK. That's a, there's a little like trace bit, of hope. Yeah. Silver lining. Um, when no. you were saying that things could get, unless things get materially worse, what does materially worse look like? Like what would be the scenario? Like what are the warning signs for that? Well, I think if the uh, Bank of England has to hike rates uh, substantially higher than they have now, three and a half, I think they go to tops four. But if they really do have to go to five, then that's a different story. And that will be because inflation is uh, really not behaving itself. And at the same time, they are worried about uh, perhaps labour market strength, particularly in in pay rises. So in some sense, it's good news. In some sense, it's bad news. But I mean, the point is, is that we need to get... um, Net, net earnings, we say, after inflation, real earnings uh, back positive, which I think we will see before the or halfway through the year. Certainly, that's what the Bank of England itself is expecting. But uh, for the moment, um, you know, that's and obviously if something external happens, as it will for the rest of the world, uh, you know, when, when you go into into mild recessions, which I think we're in the UK, you know, the, the chances of getting worse by definition are going to be higher. So there's always uh, le- less sort of, should we say, buffer to be able to. Um, protect the economy. But, you know, the only thing which I think is the, the greatest strength and possibly the greatest weakness is the fact that the that, that, that labour market is so strong, which, of course, is what's making uh, the Bank of England's job difficult with inflation. To be fair, Marcus, I think it is it is easy to feel pessimistic about the UK right now. I Just being somebody that lives here and has to live through what we go through right now, the NHS doesn't work. The trains don't work. Um, if Flu. You... Don't forget the flu. I was going to get to the flu. If you are feeling unwell, probably uh, you you may experience some issues when it comes to uh, going and and seeking seeking some health care. And it goes on and on and on. I wonder kind of whether we are going to see further strikes as well from from different bodies. We're going to see the civil servants going on strike uh, over the next few days as well. What do you make of what? what, (laughs) Yeah, good question. What what do you make of, though, the, the, the UK's current predicament? It, from from a from a labour market point of view, what you say is true about about employment, but on the other hand, you do have a situation where strikes are now pretty much ripping across the entire economy, certainly in the public sector, um, and, and look pretty intractable as well, and could go on for really quite some time. How is this mm-hmm. How is this affecting the investment case? Do you think for foreigners when they look at the UK? Largely irrelevant. I don't think it's affecting GDP, as should we say, levels particularly. Um, and, you know, it's quite difficult that the UK has decided to measure things like education and health in, in its GDP numbers, which was actually an EU initiative, which they have thus far failed to uh, follow up with. But so the UK is in, a, in an interesting situation where comparing and contrasting GDP with Europe as they're on a, they're different apples and oranges. 
So um, with regard to, I, I think, the investment case of the UK, uh, I don't think there's a, a little which isn't already very self-evident. And I think there is a real risk of people getting um, self-indulgently negative on the UK because, practically speaking, it's actually in a, in a better shape in a lot of places than, than for instance, um, the EU is. And even the US has got to have a relatively uh, you know, declined in the sense of its growth, um, which when you look in investment terms is what, what's important here. It's, it's mm -hmm. a relative case rather than the absolute case. So um, it, a lot depends, of course, where the dollar goes, where indeed what the Fed does and, and the UK is caught, you know, the tractor beam, as is Europe, of what goes on uh, stateside. But that said, you know, as I you know, there are some some compelling valuation uh, arguments to invest in the UK. Um you know, you're buying it cheap. There's no doubt about it, both in currency terms and in and in, and in valuation terms, as far as stocks are concerned. And and the bond market, I'm less is a less compelling buy because it's got so much new supply to come. Uh, as does Europe, but I think in that one particular case, the situation is in the UK is actually more extreme than, than even in Europe. Where Germany gets close, I would say, as far as amount of new issues it's going to come out the pipe this year. But you know, there's there's a lot to get uh, worried about. But the practical realities we've seen. An awful lot of the worst stuff that's coming through. I think there's actually more likelihood that the rail strikes in particular do get settled relatively soon, hmm. um, just because I just don't think the case that the, the unions are putting across is is, is getting them anywhere. Uh, and there is really no upside at all for the government to settle, uh, other than what they they are, have, have already got fairly close to what is, is a workable number, I think. So, Marcus. So I don't. Yeah. That seems to think that you expect the unions to cave, not the government. Cave's the wrong word. I just think that the the, the actual gap between the two is, is relatively slim. And I don't see what the unions gain out of this by mm. pushing it too much harder. So, yeah, the, the government will come up a bit and, and the unions need to come down, you know, optically, yep. probably in a larger amount. But practically speaking, not that much. Um, talking of unions, speaking I'm going to have to now exit stage left. Um, there are limited numbers of trains that run out of London right now. Um, and the last one goes significantly earlier than it normally does. So for those of us that, that live outside London, this brings the uh, the working day to to an end a little earlier. So I will bid both of you farewell. I, I'm oh, sure that Marcus's optimism will continue Ta -ta. throughout the rest of this show. you got you got a lot of things to talk about. Tesla is getting crushed. Crushed, yeah. Tesla, uh, Sam Mangan-Fried is going to be pleading not guilty uh, in a courthouse here in Lower Manhattan at 2 p.m. Um, we're looking at D.C. Can Kevin McCarthy become House Speaker? Um, we're also taking a look at other you know, black swans, gray swans. Marcus had a great piece out on Bloomberg Opinion. So, Guy, we'll let you go. We'll miss you. We'll see you tomorrow. Yep. Um, Marcus, so it, it does feel like you're more pessimistic than about the U.S. and, and Europe, etc. So what it can't that just drag the UK down? Like, how much is the UK going to get sucked oh. into others' vortexes here? Uh, that's a good, very good point to make, actually. I mean, I, I think that uh, particularly if, uh, you know, I, I don't expect the US to go into recession until at the earliest second half of the year, and it may well avoid it. I hope, sincerely, I hope it does. Um, I think it's less hard to argue a positive case for Europe. Um, you know, it's just the proximity to the war in, in, in Ukraine and the, and the effect on energy prices. Plus an already quite destabilized economy post the pandemic, uh, when it went into the pandemic, you know, pretty much into recession, both Germany and Italy for sure. So uh, when Germany's coming out, you know, spending a lot, and, and hopefully that'll that'll keep the economy uh, better than it might otherwise have been. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, even Deutsche Bank was predicting at one point a drop of five percent in GDP this year for Germany. So 
I don't think it'll be as bad as that. Uh, the government is clearly getting its act together in Germany to try and, and ameliorate as much as it can. But I, I really do see a lot of Europe, not necessarily all of it, but a lot of Europe being in recession and a much bigger recession than, than, than the UK will be in. But, you know, one begets the other. So, you know, yeah. weakness in Europe will, will drag the UK down for sure. Yeah, I have to I have to also wonder, too, like what what data points are we really going to be focusing on to care about? And I'm just taking a look at the inflation data from Germany today. Like a lot of hay was made about the fact that it only rose 9.6 percent, which is significantly lower sequentially and also lower than the estimate. But that's still 9.6 percent. And a lot of that was due to the government stepping in uh, on energy bills. And I just have to wonder, like, how what data points are you going to trust? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'm not saying the UK is virtuous in this, but the, the way it's it's conducted, it's, uh, you know, should we say the trying to cover uh, as best it can on, on energy costs has been more open, I think, than a lot of countries, particularly mm-hmm. France, uh, Spain, um, and to a less extent, Italy and Germany in, in, in Europe. Therefore, it's really hard to compare and contrast numbers without really getting, you know, very overly complicated. Nonetheless, the most important point is it's coming lower. We've seen it's going lower inflation in, in the States. We're starting to see that that feeding through, uh, and I, I hope and, and, and trust it will be a, a, the first of many quite sizable drops, uh, particularly from Germany, obviously, and, and the rest of Europe former. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things can get worse, obviously, if, if, uh, if with regards to energy prices, we don't quite, you know, can't quite relax, relax on that. But still, I would say direction of travel is for l- lower price. It won't really hit through in the UK until more into April. But still, you know, this is this is great news. You have to take great news where we can get it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and it, it's still very high, but I mean, I think you know, by by um, the back end of, of this year, we will be substantially lower. And the ECB itself is looking for um, inflation to, to to collapse quite quickly, which bewilders me why they are um, to the point where other than why I think things are going to, may get worse in Europe is that the ECB is determined to it seems to raise interest rates. Once, twice, three times more up 50 basis points at the same time as starting QT and at the same time as collapsing its balance sheet by 1.6 trillion from these uh, meaning, super cheap loans. Meaning that they're doing that and also inflation is falling, so they don't actually have to do all that, but they're going to o- over tighten significantly. That is the risk. It's 2011-12 all over again. So, uh, and I, I, I suspect, as with the Fed, you're seeing already the Fed, that they can see the right on the wall, that they're talking tough at the moment because they're trying to get... Um, the message across. But when it, when the reality comes, I don't think they'll do as much as they are trying to signal. Unfortunately, that comes self-defeating as everyone goes around the circle thinking that, well, it's got to be, they're going to sound harsh, but they're never going to do it really. And, right. and therefore the markets price that in. And that's unfortunately the bane of a central banker. Right. Because then they're front running the central bank, which then makes them push harder. And that just becomes this, you know, you keep doing 360s, basically, in the market. Exactly. Uh, okay, much more coming up with you, Marcus. You had a great piece out uh, with Mark Gilbert talking about the seven charts you need to know for 2023, lots of opinions on Bitcoin and crypto and that market there. And I, we're going to get gut through all of them uh, and get your take in just a moment. Um, also, just quick check in here on the markets, because Guy was pointing out what's happening with Tesla and what's happening with Apple. S&P off uh, by 30 points, uh, 8 tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq off uh, by about 1.15%. Tesla still gets hammered. Apple still gets hammered. Ugly start to this year, despite the fact that yields are actually falling a bit into the bond market. Those two things don't necessarily make sense. We'll break that down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, and Marcus Ashworth of Bloomberg Opinion joins me over in the UK. So Marcus Ashworth teamed up with Mark Gilbert. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers cross, um, who covers asset management. And here's the title, Navigating 2023 with Seven Charts and a Cat. I, I love this title. Um, all right, Marcus, so we talked a lot about the UK economy versus Europe versus uh, the, the US. Walk me through your article. What are you noticing? What are you looking at? Well, I mean, it's it's quite how difficult it is, perhaps, to put a clear view on um, on anything, really, um, which isn't very helpful. You try to predict the new year, but it's still, uh, I think, interesting to flick at things um, of which are, of which caught our eye, which we just think are, are are important. I mean, just just quickly, the three things which we didn't put in, which are important charts. One is the chart of oil. Everyone seems to think the oil price is going to zoom, and it constantly hasn't really managed to do that in the last few months. Um, which shows you that despite what Russia is trying to do, it's not having impact onto uh, most people's energy prices, we say, depending if you're denominating dollars or not. Um, so that's a very important chart, as always, the most important, quickest, dirty guide, should we say, to the to the world economy is, is what's happening to oil. And the other two things are, are Chinese inflation, which is dropping very sharply. And I think that that's why I'm so optimistic that inflation elsewhere will drop. If you chart Chinese uh, inflation and goods inflation in particular, and then mm. compare it to the rest of the world that, you know, they just do lag, uh, but definitely Chinese has collapsed. The other one, the last one is just Japanese inflation, which is rising quite sharply. We saw that lift in that uh, yield curve control ceiling uh, before Christmas. Um, that is clearly a very uh, present danger for uh, 2023, whether or not the Bank of Japan can continue to hold the tie, but just at this high level of 50 basis points. So those are three things which we haven't mentioned, but they all feed into you know where, what happens to essentially bond yields, which has probably been the most important thing this past year. We've seen uh, not just a collapse in, in complete collapse in negative yielding bonds, um, which were up to 18 trillion at one point, but now are pretty much about around one trillion. So an 18 down to one, and probably will will evaporate if that JGB cap uh, lifts higher. This is really just JGBs, which uh, short end ones, which are, are the only things negative yielding. Um, so we've got to follow our bond yields are going. Clearly, we've broken the long, very long term trend. I think over the last 20 years, we could have to keep a very close eye on that. But you know, my my temptation is for higher yields at the moment. May not last all year. We'll have to wait to see inflation does. But certainly, the pressure is on already. Uh, for higher bond yields, um, as we've seen, the back end of December was mm -hmm. pretty bad in, in particular. Uh, inflation it links it; they're all one part of the same, just different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the German inflation dropping sharply. We know US has dropped sharply, but still, uh, as a globe, uh, we are getting close to or just we, we peaked at over ten percent, coming just a little bit lower now. But we want to see that drop back down to the long term average of between really two and four percent, which is we've seen for the last uh, few decades. So certainly the last uh, last five years in particular. So that is something which is, you know, obviously what we what we worry about. And mm -hmm. the determinant of that always underlying inflation of central banks is very much earnings. So that labor data is probably going to replace inflation. It's, it's going to be important to see how much inflation is, is, is falling. But what's really going to drive markets is is the engine behind it, which is which is labor stats. Uh, we get obviously the first look at perils um, on Friday. Um, for the December number, but uh, really the most important of all probably will be labor rates, how much people are getting paid. Uh, and that is something which the central banks are going to have to see tempering before they can really start to 
they could cool down a bit on the on the pace of increasing in, uh, interest rates and maybe slow the amounts down. They're already down from 75 to 50 uh, basis point jumps. But to get into the realms of rate cuts, we are going to have to see labor uh, rates pay going quite sharply uh, softening. And so that's obviously probably the most important thing I would think we need to look mm-hmm. out for this year. Um, you almost did all of them in like one answer. That was that was impressive. Uh, but you left out shipping news that the, that that shipping actually improves. That the cost of moving goods around the world is actually going to get better. I have to tell you, I am still waiting for a fridge handle that I ordered in March. So I have not <laughs> yet seen the fruits of this labor. But I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's important thing, but that shows you logistics have eased up, port delays. But I mean, it's, a lot of this flows into again to the oil price. You know, that they, they, they do they do mirror each other. There's certainly a correlation, uh, and uh, with with lowering uh, oil prices, it means the cost of shipping is uh, one element goes into the cost of shipping is is reduced. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I think you know, obviously, the Suez Canal. Remember that when that got chip got blocked, but there were a whole raft of things which have taken a long while to work through the system. And and clearly, if you look at how much it costs you to to move a 40 foot box across the across the ocean um east west it's it's dropped from about 10,000 down to around 2 now so you know it's 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 a fifth of the price mm-hmm. that that can only be good news for 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 you know shows you good inflation in particular has dropped sharply sharply away we've still got services inflation yeah. looking quite high housing but that's all starting to drop away very sharply as well and we hope that will carry on um, you also talk about, uh, I want to save enough time for the cats. So let me just, I have to pick a couple here. Um, oh, please. You also talk please. about uh, the negative yielding bond universe. That is like totally whipsawed in the last year. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, that's dropped from 18 trillion down to about 1 trillion. It's uh, it's basically because the ECB has, has hiked its rates from negative back up to positive. Uh, the rest of the world has followed it. Um, you know, even... Even investment grade and sometimes even junk credit in Europe was, was negative yielding at one point. You know, it was just Alice in the, through the looking glass world. And, um, you know, that that's sharply corrected in Europe. And um, I think that's a, a trend which, it, you know, unfortunately will feed through and possibly uh, exacerbate recession in Europe. But yeah, uh, what's left is, you know, Switzerland gone with it as well. Uh, various variety of other other um, even the UK and a couple other uh, parts of the world. Had had some negative bonds. They've all they've all gone positive again as they should be. Um, what's left is just uh, Japan, and we we may see the end of of, of Japanese negative yielding bonds. Um, Huge. you know, before too long. Um, all right, Marcus, we have forty seconds. What's with the cat? It's just showing you what what AI can do, and, and so so this and is basically an do. AI version of a cat playing guitar. Is that true? Yeah, it's just you know you you, you speak in the box, ask for something, and. I still don't. I've, I I really can't look at that picture. It just freaks me out. So it's the shoulders. It's just that's not right. So I mean, that's a lot to go in AI. We know ChatGPT. It's all very exciting, but you know, there's a lot more to go. Yeah, it is. You can definitely check out the article. It's basically a, a, a cat with human-like fingers, but it's really a paw playing a guitar, and it looks pretty darn real. Um, crazy town. Okay, uh, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, COVID, uh, the flu. It's like a tridemic that we're under right now. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus Ashworth joins me over in the UK. Um, let's get a quick check on here on U.S. markets. S&P falling. Tech-heavy Nasdaq 100 losses exceeded 1% now. Uh, Apple's decline came. Um, the market cap was right below that $2 trillion market cap level. There are worries about iPhone supply um, in the holiday quarter. So the Nikkei 
there was reporting that they didn't have to necessarily the suppliers didn't have to necessarily supply everything that they needed to, which points to a demand issue. At the same time, you have Tesla uh, that stock down uh, tremendously, and that's also on the news that it's missed its delivery estimates, also highlighting potentially a demand issue. And overall, that is definitely weighing on the Nasdaq, despite the fact that you're looking at bond yields uh, pushing much lower. You're seeing the ten-year getting a nice bid here, um, down by about nine basis points. It's a quick snapshot here in the U.S. Now let's get to Charlie Pellet with some other headlines. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Five days of strikes will cripple much of the UK's train network this week as unions ramp up industrial action in a dispute over pay and working conditions. Network Rail has urged the public to only travel if absolutely necessary, with many commuters deciding to work from home instead of battling their way to the office. First-time homebuyers accounted for the biggest chunk of Britain's property purchases in 2022, even as mortgage rates spiraled to 14-year highs and the cost of living squeeze strained finances. Research from Yorkshire Building Society finds Britons buying their first home made up an estimated 53% of all property purchases with a mortgage last year. That is up from 50% in 2021 and 41% a year ago. Analysts at Barclays say Rolex has raised prices in the UK by an average of about 2.5%, the latest increase for the top Swiss watch brand. Barclays said the price of the most popular Rolex models rose between 1% and slightly more than 3% in both the UK and the US in the start of this year. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. Uh, okay. The other big question mark that's hanging over everyone's head in 2023 is what's going to happen with COVID. You have China reopening. You have certain nations like the U.S. that are having uh, putting travel restrictions on travelers coming out of China. Um, you have a new variant that's really wreaking havoc here in the Northeast, XBB. So who do we have to talk to? Sam Fazelli of Bloomberg Intelligence joins us now. Hey, Sam, put in perspective for us. China reopens, variants spread. What's the through line we have to be watching here? Hi, Alex, and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, I hope you can hear me well. Um, I'm in the studio all by myself, so this is quite novel to me. Um, <laughs> you can do it. We hear you. You're good. <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. So, I, I, obviously, the two are unrelated because the XBB is a um, is a variant that we've talked about before, well before this China reopening, and 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 it, this is a sub variant of the sub variant. So it's XBB spot one, spot five. Um, that's spreading in in the U.S. and and um, it seems to have a slightly higher to a degree transmission capability than other variants, which is why they take over. Um, but other than that, what's happening in China is still the same as what we've said before. It looks like the let it rip policy is the um, is the order of the day at the minute, and that's um, and the rest of that is we just have to rely on anecdotal information about what's actually happening on the ground. Sam, uh, happy new year, by the way. Um, what does a government in the West do with regards to, do they, uh, as I think as other countries are doing, ask for a negative test before people leaving China get on a plane? Do they test them just sort of uh, in a random selection when they land? Or do they test them more comprehensively? Should we be worried about anything here? Or are we more worrying about worrying than the actual fact the real the real risk for the... the as it's now so widespread and, and vaccined uh, across the most of the Western world. Yeah, I'm going to go for the latter, Marcus, because we've got the situation here where I think it's been pretty much clear all along that these tests on arrival, tests before departure and all that don't really make a huge amount of difference. It may delay um, 
the spread of, of virus from one region to another by a week or two. But let's go back. I mean, you know, it's not like we haven't got experience with this. Alpha, Delta, mm -hmm. Omicron. They've gone all over the place, despite... I mean, th remember what we did to South Africa last year yep. for openly uh, discussing and analyzing and putting forward their data? We closed everything to them, even no, no flights going, if you remember, before Omicron, just as Omicron hit. And they did nothing in the end. So uh, this is window dressing. This is governments making themselves feel good that they're doing something. It really doesn't make change anything because... There can be asymptomatic transmission. There can be people who are incubating, which are therefore not positive, getting mm -hmm. on the plane. It doesn't mean anything. Right. And also, yeah, you can test negative and then like 12 hours later be positive. So there is that too. Um, okay, so that's that part of the story. Then we get to the XBB, which you which you mentioned. Um, at the same time, you have the flu, uh, which is running rampant here. RSV going crazy. I know that you guys in the UK are getting hit pretty hard as well. Um, what, what do you think this winter is going to look like? Well, I think, I think we've got the taste of that already, Alex, as you've just described. Um, in fact, it seems like at least flu in the United States, from the last data I looked at, um, is, has peaked in terms of hospitalizations and cases. So maybe that's going to be, therefore, the, the flu season came early, peaked early, and it's gone. Its peak was perhaps higher than previous peaks, but, but, but not, not, not higher than every other peak that we've seen before. Um, and it just came a lot earlier and a lot more fiercer. And then RSV, of course, the same at the t on, on top of that. And you've got COVID going on top of that. But, but at one point, um, hospitalizations due to flu were higher than due to COVID, which is quite interesting, yeah. although not openly discussed. Uh, at the end of the day, people should have taken their flu jabs. And, and unfortunately, I think uh, the um, penetration of that was quite low. I was just about to ask. So um, the basic message now is is that is that probably there's no real need for extra boosters on COVID as a general rule. Not obviously if you've got specific health conditions or or other reasons. But what you're saying is that the flu jab probably is still worth uh, pursuing. The only reason why I say is I took both at the same time about six weeks ago. Me too. And I was floored for a week. Really? I mean, yeah. properly not back. Yeah. I, I, was, I was fine. I was... That didn't make any sense. <laughs> You are strong. There you go. Like no, you're kidding. I'm, I'm the person action. with long COVID. And I was like, what? Jabs? No problem. Human biology oh. in action. Marcus, I have to tell you, this is the, and, and Alex, this is the first time I've ever taken the flu jab. Hmm. Just because I wanted to keep making myself, <clears throat> excuse me, believe that I'm a young person and I'm okay. But at some point, you have to start thinking about it. And, and this year, I knew we were going to have a pretty awful uh, uh, expectation of an awful season so I, I took the flu jab as regards boosters so don't surprise surprise the fda is going to have a um, a, a discussion of its advisory committee on the 26th of jan to discuss the re the idea of yet another booster update mm. i wonder what percentage of people are going to go for that one i mean i'll do it but i don't know about anybody else um sam we gotta let you go because you're also dealing with the train strikes and you got to get home so thank you for sticking around uh sam Vizelli, bloomberg intelligence we truly appreciate that um but i think that's part of the problem marcus at least here like i mean i'm wearing a mask but no one's wearing a mask um I feel like no one's getting their boosters. Like I'm like first in line. Like I forget it. After last year, I'm taking it really seriously. But it, it, you know, this is what it's going to be, right? Unless people start taking it more seriously. Ah, uh, well, I mean, then, then you know, what to do? Just if you're not going to take a uh, a booster, what, what's the point in wearing a mask? Or is there a still point in wearing a mask? I mean, I I, I used to live in Japan. It was just, you would go. I was in common 
sense and manners that if you had a cough or cold or something like that or a sniffle, you just wore a mask just out of courtesy for other people, yes. not to protect yourself. And I think that's where perhaps, I you know, I'm not saying we should all be walking around in masks, sometimes when you walk around Tokyo, you do feel, wow, what's going on? But it, it's a it's a madness, isn't it? I, I totally agree. Um, when like a kid comes over to my house with like a cough, I'm like, get out, why are you here? Um, okay, anyway, so that's the update for COVID. Uh, now we're gonna take it to DC and see where Kevin McCarthy's future lies. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus Ashworth is over in London, um, UK, I should say. So let's get to politics here in the US. It's actually poised to be quite interesting. Um, within, well, it looks like they're dealing with stuff right now. But Kevin McCarthy faces a pretty big challenge to become the next Speaker of the House. The new Congress is being sworn in today. Um, the voting should get underway relatively soon, and it could be pretty dicey. And you could say this is just political brinkmanship, but it could have very big implications on the debt ceiling uh, and whether or not we're dealing with another kind of default a la 2010. So let's get the update now with uh, Bloomberg reporter Laura Davison. Laura, where are we here? So they are voting on the House floor right now after just starting the new Congress. And it is really unclear what is going to happen here. There was a, a meeting with all House Republicans this morning where they uh, people got to stand up, say their piece. And there's, you know, somewhere between five to almost 20 Republicans who say they're going to vote against McCarthy here in just a few minutes. And he can only lose four votes. So it's very likely he's, he's likely to go down on this first ballot. There can be successive ballots until they do get a majority of all House members present. Uh, but if McCarthy uh, does fail and has to step down, it's not clear really who could step in in his place. Fascinating. Um, I was about to ask that question. Is there anyone else who could replace? And just, just to humor me here, my innocent sort of uh, English way of looking at things, is there any chance any of the Democrats move across to do something just to come from a compromise or was it all blanket democratic opposition and just a question of how many um as you said no more than four republicans who failed to support him it's democrats if they wanted to if they wanted to be really really nice to kevin mccarthy what they could do is have a couple of their members vote present instead of a vote against mccarthy and that would allow him to get the majority uh he needs that's unlikely to happen uh so what people will start looking to is you know what are these other names of republicans who could potentially get a majority um some people like steve scalise who's currently the number two republican in the house um or a guy by the name of patrick mchenry he's a republican from north carolina he chairs the house financial services committee respected guy, but someone who took that job running that committee because he didn't want to be in leadership and dealing with the kinds of headaches that we're seeing playing out right now. So let's just pretend that this gets ugly. What happens? I mean, to put it in perspective, it's been 100 years since since a speaker didn't get the votes in, in the first round. I would argue that things are already ugly. Uh, you know, people left this meeting today saying lots of, uh, you know, frankly, not nice things about their colleagues. Um, you have a big fractitious um, sort of these these very uh, divisive groups within uh, the Republican Party. Um, so no matter who comes out as speaker, you're going to have a party where you've got um, different divisions. You've got people mad at each other. Um, and if you're Kevin McCarthy, you have, uh, you know, uh, you know, 10, 15 people on your team who, you know, really don't like you. Um, so there, there's really no good outcome for Republicans. Republicans here. The question is, are they able to wrap this up without having, uh, you know, just totally stem the bleeding uh, sooner rather than later? <laughs> and does is there come a point whereby uh, McCarthy has to step away because he's he, he's used up all his chances? 
Um, or equally, when is the point when this starts to get really serious? As we mentioned, the debt ceiling earlier. How long can the sort of inactivity? Because they can't do anything until they've the start of the speaker. Uh, at what point do the sort of this gets very uh, meaningful for the rest of the country? Yeah, so there's not a you know a procedural point in which he has to to step away from this vote. But if we get to you know three or four ballots here and he's not winning support, that's when you're going to see these uh, discussions uh, you know about who could replace him come into play. And as you noted, whoever is the speaker, it's very important because they're going to have to be the person who's going to be able to uh, negotiate this debt ceiling deal. You know, if, we, if we're seeing the kind of opposition um, today that we're seeing against McCarthy, you know, when the debt ceiling vote comes up, this does not bode well for financial markets. No, it really doesn't. And I know that that's uh, farther out, but it definitely sort of sets the stage uh, for that kind of dysfunction. All right. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate Laura Davidson, a Bloomberg congressional reporter, uh, joining us there. So I would say that there's more likelihood that Rishi Sunak is going to cave and give the unions all that they want than a Democrat voting for uh, Kevin McCarthy to be Speaker of the House. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> that's like, I, that's I, I, perspective. That's where I'd put my money on. Fair enough. I, I, I bow to your greater knowledge on these matters. <laughs> oh, I definitely wouldn't. I'm, I'm just saying, like, I just I cannot imagine that happening. It just also feels like gridlock and dysfunction are going to continue in a big, big way um, in the U.S. as we head to the presidential election in 2024. Oh, goody. Um, all right, coming up, there is a lot to talk about when it comes to stories that Wall Street's buzzing about. One of them in Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, also, uh, John Gray spoke to Shanali Bassick earlier as well. We're going to get all of that from Shanali coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, and Marcus Ashworth joins me from the UK. Um, one thing hotly awaited over the next couple hours is Sam Bankman-Fried and his arraignment um, uh, at the lower courthouse in New York City. Shanali Basic is there. He's expected to enter a plea of not guilty. She is right outside the courthouse. Hey, Shanali, first off, like, What's it like down there? Are people talking? Is there buzz? What's the feeling? Hey, it's quite the scrum, as one of our reporters put it in our kind of internal chats to each other as we cover this thing. She's inside. I'm outside. He just walked in. Uh, we will have video coverage of it because, remember, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has only recently even agreed to be extradited to the United States. Now, he had been let out on $250 million bond. He flew in from his parents' home in California and Palo Alto, and he did indeed make it today. So it was, you know, not as crowded as I would expect. There was some question here about the courtroom headed into overflow. It's a very rainy day in southern Manhattan. So uh, that's probably deterred some people who probably otherwise would have been here. But uh, certainly quite the moment Remember, this is one of the biggest fraud uh, allegations in American history, and a lot of lawmakers have already said that this is going to be bigger than what we saw with Bernie Madoff. Well, I'm just just trying to – I keep on thinking, I don't know why, I expected SBF to do a OJ-style, you know, chasing across the the islands, people trying to find him. I can't believe he, he, he gave himself up, but he has. Now he's going to plead not guilty, so we believe. Realistically, for those sort of watching in an amazement from you know, overseas, what chance he got that, that the process of justice doesn't, what looks fairly, well, we should pre-justice this, but I mean, you know, is he got a chance of, of holding a, a not guilty plea together? Think about how unique this is. The point that a lot of people have made was that Bernie Madoff essentially turned himself in. Now, in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried, not only is he expected to plead not guilty, he had done a full media tour 
before he was arrested, citing all the ways that he didn't intend to do anything he is now being alleged of doing. And then the question of intent becomes a real question once again as we watch this trial go on. The other thing is, too, by pleading not guilty, there's a chance here for more evidence to be brought forward from prosecutors. And the one thing that complicates this for him the most is the cooperation of his deputies, including Caroline Allison and was a top engineer, Gary Wang, But remember, there are plenty of others at FTX where we don't yet know the extent to which they have cooperated, particularly with the U.S. authorities that are accusing him of the criminal misconduct that he is now being accused of. So you you were covering this story today. You also covered what happened with Blackstone. So it's getting a $4 billion cash infusion from the University of California for its massive real estate fund, Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust, which you call BREIT. Um, Can you tell us the significance of this and sort of why it happened now? Yeah, it's interesting because you do see Blackstone shares reacting positively. And remember, at the end of last year, there were a lot of concerns about this nearly $70 billion fund, B-Read, as you call it. So this is a crown jewel. Blackstone really invented this semi-liquid vehicle in which wealthier investors, retail investors, to get institutional-type access to real estate. Now, it's heading to its first big test, and what happened was a lot of investors had pulled money from um, Asian investors had pulled money to have more liquid holdings. That's how they've described what has happened. They said that the redemptions were not as wide in other areas. So now what it's being shown as is a way for this other big investor, uh, University of California Regents, to invest that $4 billion into this fund that had suffered those redemptions from those clients in Asia. Um, Net-net, still a big open question on what this means for a fund like this, especially because that investor has been given some preferential treatment for a longer lockup period and such a big investment. They have a minimum guaranteed return of more than 11%. And so how does this change kind of the negotiation for Blackstone? And also, how does it keep questions alive of, okay, if investors have to pull money at such a hard degree because they're in trouble, what does that spell out for a fund like BREIT? And by the way, many, many, many copycat funds across the industry that are trying to create more liquidity for private investment. It just smacks of a sort of Warren Buffett-style trade to me. I mean, as you said, 11 and a quarter percent minimum uh, over six years. Yes, they've got a six-year lockup, but that's that's sweet money. Uh, and I suppose if you've got a 150-odd billion or whatever uh, University of California has, investments has, it can afford to take a bit of a risk uh, with such a nice fat yield on, on $4 billion. Um, and I suppose then to the breaks in the context that, that if they're prepared to step up and lock their money up for six years, they are going to get preferential treatment. Is that not fair? Yeah, and it's something I asked him directly on the record on television about. And the point he was making is, listen, a typical check for this fund is like $70,000. They're putting in $4 billion. And for and he is right in that when large investors make deals to co-invest or you know, do investments at that scale alongside private asset firms, this has been pretty standard industry treatment for the big checks, for the bigger lockup periods. So, yes, it is an absolutely sweet deal. But it is true that this has become kind of commonplace for the industry, for the larger investors. They do get sweeter deals. Yeah, I mean, that's 
kind of how that goes. Uh, anyway, great reporting. You've been all over the place, Janelle. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. And you got to run to TV now. Janelle Bassick joining us there. Um, all right, Marcus. Well, it did feel like a busy first start of the trading day um, here in 2023. What are you watching? What's what's your thing the next? Well, I'm, I'm going to see you every day for the rest of the week now. But what's your thing you're watching uh, for tomorrow? Um, I just Fed minutes coming through. We've mm. got payrolls at the end of, end of the week. Um, and obviously, we mentioned earlier German inflation was was pretty good, so we'll get the rest of the EU. Um, you know, there's a few a few things going on which which show the economies aren't doing very well. I'm going to keep a very close eye on on that sort of real time data, um, forward looking stuff that on uh, as whether or not we are tipping into recessions, uh, as the IMF reckons a third of the, of the globe already is or, or about to be. So, yeah, it's more of the same. To be quite frank, you know, it, it was a bad end to the year. I think particularly for bond markets, yeah. uh, equities are a bit wibbly wobbly too. Um, we're not seeing any evidence of that. We didn't get a Santa rally and we didn't get, uh, so far anyway, a big exciting new year nope. uh, either. So, I mean, you're feeling, bit, you're feeling a bit better. Here we're looking at the NASDAQ off by about 1.5%. Anyway, much more coming up. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday. This is Bloomberg.